Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. If you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles now to the prophet Isaiah, to chapter 6. Hold your finger there in a moment. I'll be right there with you. Um, Ephraim just got through covering one of the most powerful um, Torah portions that we have in all of the Torah, the portion we all call Yithro or Jethro. It's the portion in which that Moses and the children of Israel received the Ten Commandments. God makes this proposal with the children of Israel that he would love to be the, their God, uh, to be their king, and he asked them if they'd be his people. And as you recall, the agreement was made. Uh, the people responded with, whatever the Lord has said, we will do. And this, uh, this is given even before the Lord gives his commandments, even before the Lord speaks to all of the people. And this agreement, this covenant is formed at this point. Uh, what most people refer to as the old covenant, this is the one. This is where it was actually formed. God offers to do this, and then the people responded to it, just like a marriage proposal like Ephraim uh, mentioned. Now, one other thing that I want to say before I get going here too far, and Ephraim, in the course of his teaching, used the proper Hebrew pronunciation of senile, senai, that's too close to the word senile for me, and being an older person, I don't want to use that word. <laughs> so I'm going to use the old English one, which is Sinai. They were at Mount Sinai, as opposed to Sinai and it slurring over to senile. Uh, just, just for future reference, so that you don't see that I'm disputing my son or something like that. It's, that's, that that's not what it's about. Okay, so this, uh, what follows then is God speaks uh, the Ten Commandments to the people. And in next week's portion, there's going to be a follow-up to that about where the people will be afraid to hear the voice of God. And that's when the agreement will be made uh, in the future where 
God will send someone from the mountain to go and then speak to the people. Now, I mention that because the reason this particular Haftor portion, this portion from the prophets, is matched up with Yithro is because um, this is the very first start of how Isaiah the prophet began his ministry as a prophet for the Lord, for the God of Israel. Apparently, Isaiah was in the temple, and the veil that was there uh, separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place, he was able to see the embroidery work, and there used to be an embroidery work up on this veil of the seraphim. The seraphim are the angels that have the six wings, and they're the ones that are elevated above the throne of the Lord. And, uh, and in, as I read this portion, you'll recognize it very quickly. Isaiah is one of three men in Scripture that gives us a vision and perspective of the throne of God. Uh, Isaiah will do it here. Ezekiel will give us a perspective. And the Apostle John in the book of Revelation will give us a perspective of seeing the throne. Just to review those very quickly, Isaiah sees it from the top down. Ezekiel sees it from the bottom up, and John will see it straight on. And by taking the combination of those three uh, key passages where it's describing the throne of God, we can get a whole vision of what the throne of God looks like. And let me go ahead and just tell you, the vision of the whole throne of God is also matches the pattern of the tabernacle. That the things, the way the tabernacle is laid out is the way the throne of God is set, has set forth for us as well. And the further study of the angels, the archangels, and their placement and their location and, and the, the, the other things associated with the throne of God, you can get a very comprehensive point of view as to what the throne looks like, where Moses went to, where others have been, and, and it will tra trace into what we're going to read here. Now, why... Did they match this portion to the incredible uh, Torah portion about the giving of the law, this making the covenant and giving the law? The reason is that, Mo, uh, that excuse me, Isaiah here is going to be confronted with God making himself visible to him because that picture of the seraphim in the temple, it's going to lead to a vision that Isaiah is going to have where he sees the throne of God. And the Ark of the Covenant is behind the veil right there in that place. And, and he's going to get this vision of the throne of God, God speaking to him, the seraphim are above, and he is going to be confronted. He's going to hear God make an offer to him, uh, whom, whom shall I send, and he will respond, here I am, Lord, send me. And essentially, that's the same dynamic that was going on when God came to the children of Israel and says, look, this is who I am, a holy God. I would love to make you a treasured possession. I'll be your God for you. Do you want to do it or not? And the people said, yes, we want to do it. You know, whatever you say, Lord, that's what we'll do. You know, let's make this agreement. Well, it's the same thing is happening with Isaiah. Isaiah is making the same kind of thing, only it's a very personalized one for him to be dispatched as a prophet uh, to Israel. Um, there's a couple other things that we'll draw out in here that is also part of the parallel, but that's the jest 
of why in the world would they take this passage of Scripture and they would connect it uh, with the Torah portion. So with that said, that we know what the connection is, let's go ahead and examine what did Isaiah experience here? What, what, what are the dynamics that are taking place for him? So with that, join with me now to Isaiah chapter 6 and let us look together. Verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. If you remember the experience of the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, the ground shook. There was a great amount of smoke and the sound was like thunder. And it was very impressive kind of thing, you know, and, and the whole concept of that the Lord, um, his, the whole earth is full of his glory. Believe me, when you hear the Mount Sinai uh, exchange, and so it, it was the whole world was affected. And so the, that's part of this grandeur and the reason why there's a connection to it. Verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. At this moment, Isaiah is coming to terms with certain truths about him, and it becomes visible to him because of the glory of God. God, who is truth comes into his presence, he's confronted with the truth, and suddenly realizes he's undone. Now, maybe he had had the thought that he might be undone before. Maybe he might have thought, being humble fella, that, that he wasn't quite as good as what he thought he was. But there's no question about it anymore. When he comes into God's presence, it's overwhelming. The contrast is too great. And he admits he has nothing. He has nothing to stand on. He has nothing to commend him with before God. And, and this now sets the stage. Let me tell you, there's a very powerful and important principle here at work. And that is the following. There's no man who is going to be able to effectively serve God until he comes to terms with the reality of the truth of who he is and that he has nothing to commend himself with before a holy God. He has nothing. He has no value whatsoever. That he has to come to those terms and that reality first before God can begin to use him. Any man who comes in and says, you know, hey, you know, uh, I know a few things about the Bible, and, and uh, by the way, I'm a good guy, I want to be a good guy, and I, you know what, I think I'm going to start up a Messianic congregation here, I'm going to be teaching Torah to people, and, and, and we get started on your own energy, and your own intellect, and your own thoughts, and study a few books, and go and say, hey, I'm going to go off and do that, and you have not had this experience before the living God, where you've come to the point of recognizing you are undone. You have nothing that you can offer to the king and to his kingdom. You, you're not qualified in anything. You have, you have, you, you have nothing. 
There's a lot of men who get started in the ministry and they do it in their own strength. They don't last. There's a lot of people who want to be prophets. A false prophet is a guy who thinks, I have something to offer God. I'm going to go help God. He may, you know, it sounds noble, but he gets started and he does not operating in the strength of God. And guess what? He fails. He falters. Things don't quite work out right because he wasn't dispatched by God. And he was doing something on his own. And that's, you know, the definition of a false prophet, a false teacher. The Lord says, I didn't send them. And by the way, we are all subject to different kinds of teachers. And one of the things that people need to ever once in a while question and ask yourself, this teacher I'm listening to, to what is his testimony of when a God anointed him to send him? Why is he out sharing information? Where did he get it from? And has he been sent by God? In other words, is there a deep faith in the heart of this man that he's been motivated by God? Or does he think he's smart and because he's done a bunch of study or whatever the case may be, or he has life experience that qualifies him to do it, or somebody passed something down and gave it to him from somebody else, by what authority does he do what he's doing? Let me just say to you, the man who has the testimony that he was undone and had nothing, and then God said, I want you to go do this, he's probably closer to the truth than the other fellow. And by the way, the guy that is sent by the Lord will be strengthened by the Lord, and he'll, he'll be sustained. He's not here today and gone tomorrow. And, and he has the necessarily, he has the necessary strength from the Spirit of God to guide him and to strengthen him and keep him upright and on the path correctly. The guy that's doing it on his own, the guy who self-initiated himself, is the guy who, you know, it was a good idea to start to do this and it might be another good idea tomorrow to go off and do something else. Uh, whatever the case may be. This is a very powerful passage of Scripture that talks about how Isaiah began his ministry, the call. And we believe that all prophets, all true prophets, have this kind of experience. I personally believe that all good teachers, pastors, all of the offices of the ministry, these people have to have had this moment with God where they believe God has anointed them and called them to do us. We, we talk, we call it our call. And they have to have this testimony. So one of the things that whenever I meet a lot of people who are in the ministry, I love to ask them, I said, tell me about when the Lord called you. What happened? <laughs> Did you have an Isaiah experience? Did you have a burning bush experience? You know, tell me about what the Lord said. Hey, I want to send somebody to go do something. How about you? Would you go for me? When did the Lord send you? Tell, tell me about that. Because men who have a call from God have this shared experience. And so we see this being what uh, is the testimony of Isaiah. Let's go a little bit further and take a look at this. Verse 6. Here's the man. He's undone. Okay? He, he knows he's not qualified for what is getting ready to happen. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity has been taken away, and your sin is forgiven. 
Wow. That's a very interesting verse. Why is a coal, which we're talking about a burning coal, from the altar, why does that, why is, why does that remove sin? What, how, how is it that, that it's then announced his sin, whatever it was, has been forgiven? Well, first of all, let's stop and think about this. What has God taught us about altars? What has he taught about the pyre or the fire on the altar? One of the things that we know is that the altar is the table of God. This is where God does business with a man. You come and you approach the altar. You come and approach this table. And he has, at various times, specified certain gifts you are permitted to bring. Certain sacrifices that you're permitted. And the base definition of a gift to God is it has to have value to you. It has to be a sacrifice on your part. When you give a gift in which that you sacrifice to be able to provide the gift, that's what gives the gift its value. Um, if you bring a gift and it's like of no value to you, you didn't bring anything. You did not definitely, you did not bring a sacrifice. And so the Lord has set up this substitution system of these sacrifices so that each person would bring something that is a sacrifice to them. So for example, if you're a rich man, don't be bringing a lamb. Yeah, you know, lambs are nothing. I'm a rich man. I've got, I got all kinds of stuff. You know, I've got plenty. That, that doesn't really cost me. Bring a bull. So it costs you something. So it's a sacrifice on your part. But now a poor person can't possibly afford a bull or even a lamb. The Lord says, well, you can bring a turtle dove. And that's a sacrifice for them. In other words, the idea of all of the different giftings was if it is a sacrifice to you. So the reason I emphasize that in particular is that's what the coals are for. To consume the gift that has been given. And God accepts it because the sacrifice has been made and it's consumed. And it was the fire and the coals that did it. Those coals are holy. They have received the gift. And by him picking up a coal from the altar, bringing it over, and he, by the way, he confessed that his sin was he had unclean lips. He lived amongst the people who had unclean lips. And so he places the coal against his lips. That's where he sees the focus of his sin. And he touches his lips and he says, now you're forgiven. You spoke of your lips. It touches your lips. It solves the problem. This altar solves that problem. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, brethren, Yeshua is our sacrifice, the Lamb of God's sacrifice, for willful, defiant sin and all of the curses that we're worthy of. We have sinned, the law has said, the soul that sins shall die. We have a death sentence against us by the laws of God because we missed the mark of what God said. And not only did we miss the mark, we intentionally missed the mark. And God has therefore said, you're worthy of death. So what's the solution? Well, the solution is that there's a sacrifice that happens to be on the altar and you have got to get connected to that altar and something from that altar has got to get connected to you. 
because that's how forgiveness takes place. That's how God will accept a gift as a substitute for you and me. Now, uh, this, I, I just want to take this moment because we're talking about when God came down on the mountain, the incredible thing that took place. Well, there's something else for us, an incredible thing that took place when the Messiah came from heaven and came down here and walked around with us and ministered to us and so forth. And there came a moment when he brought all that was the teaching of the law and all these things together when he offered himself up to be the sacrifice that would provide forgiveness and redemption for all of us. We all know the story. He was lifted up on the cross and he died. And redemption was, the price of redemption was paid for us. This is one of the questions I always ask a lot of my new covenant brethren. If God says that an altar needs to be involved, and by the way, the Messiah taught that too, um, then where was the altar when Yeshua was crucified? When Yeshua was the Lamb of God, when he paid for the redemption, where was the altar so we can have the transaction so that we can receive forgiveness? Because here's... You know, it's coals from the altar that come and forgives Isaiah. Where's the product of the altar, the consumption of the sacrifice on the altar? Where's that altar? Where's that fire? Where's those coals that also provides the same thing for us, now we who believe in the Messiah? And I've had this conversation many times. Most people will guess, well, it was the cross. No, it wasn't the cross. That's what elevated him. That's what lifted him up. Where was the altar where it has God's name, where it's tended to by priests according to the laws of God? Where's the altar that sanctified that gift and that sacrifice? Because Yeshua taught a religious man thinks that the gift is more important than the altar. Yeshua corrected that thinking. He said, do you not understand? It is the altar that sanctifies the gift. This is Matthew 23. It's the altar must be present to sanctify the gift. And there has to be one present for the Lamb of God. So where's the altar that accepted the sacrifice of the Lamb of God so you and I could receive forgiveness? The answer is it was in the temple in Jerusalem. And we know that that was the altar that was used for this purpose because the centurion who was carrying out the responsibility of the sacrifice of Yeshua, God come down to the earth, stood at the foot of the cross and claimed at the moment of Yeshua's death that he could look across the Kidron Valley over the top of the wall of the gates of Jerusalem, over the top of the altar into the temple, through the doors of the temple, right to the veil, and he saw the veil rent. There's only one place on the earth where a Gentile could see such a thing. You have to be on the Mount of Olives, slightly elevated above the altar in the line of sight. That means that at the moment of death, our Heavenly Father, seated on the mercy seat, looked out with the altar right there in front of him and sees his son elevated above the altar being the sacrifice. The elevation of Yeshua on the cross was simply to get him to the right elevation to be above the altar in Jerusalem. That altar in Jerusalem 
sanctified, the blood of the new covenant. This is an incredible thing that took place. This is as powerful as God coming down on Mount Sinai. The Messiah has come down to do this work. And getting that vision and seeing what God has done, and it's associated with the temple. When God comes down, he does business with us from his temple, from his throne. At Mount Sinai, he brought the whole throne down to do business. By the way, I have some good news for you. When this is all over and done with, the Messiah is planning on bringing his entire throne from heaven to come down to be stationed in Jerusalem and live on the planet with us. We will go worship the Lord at his temple in Jerusalem. All of the creating of the temple by Moses in the tabernacle and later by Solomon and others in Jerusalem was to help us to envision correctly all the things that God has been trying to do us in this covenant. And by the way, for my Christian brethren, when Yeshua got on the cross, he did not make any of this stuff go away. He was actually fulfilling and doing what it meant. Um, I want you to... Uh, do you see the dynamic at this moment? Here we are, Messianic believers. We're trying to get the vision. We're going back to Mount Sinai. We're trying to understand what God was really doing. And yet, we're also believers of Yeshua, the Messiah. And we're seeing what Yeshua did for us, how momentous and incredible that is, and so forth. I want you to now look at what does God do with Isaiah when he dispatches him to his people. This is going to be utterly fascinating for you. Um, he touches the, uh, the coal to his lips, his sin are forgiven. Verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Isaiah responds, Send me, Lord. So he's agreed to it. And here's what the Lord says to him. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes or hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. I would have thought that if God was going to send a prophet out to speak to God's people, it would be to enlighten them so they could see. Or to open their ears so they could hear. Or to expand their thinking so that they could understand. Instead, what does God say to Isaiah? He says, no, I want you to go out. I want you to say something to these people that they're not going to see, hear, or understand. I want you to say it to them so that they can't get it. Did you know that the book of Isaiah and the ministry of the prophet Isaiah is quoted more in the New Testament than any other prophet from the Old Testament? That the teachers in the New Testament quote from Isaiah more than any other place in the scripture to explain what the Messiah was talking about. Because it is a fact that there were many prophecies given about the Messiah, but when the Messiah actually really did come to Israel, did the people of Israel, the religious leaders and so forth, 
did they see and understand this was the Messiah come as the prophets had said? No. They had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. They had a heart, but they couldn't understand anything of what he was talking about. Did you know God purposed that? He purposed that so that no man could stand up and say, well, I got this all figured out. I know how to get myself saved. That every man has to come to this moment where they say, oh my goodness, I'm confronted with the glory of God. I'm undone. So that the healing can take place. The forgiveness can take place. And every one of us who've come to faith Honestly, if you've not had, when you came to faith, if you didn't have that moment where truly you needed to repent, you needed to lay it all down, you, you, you were confessing that you, you were undone, then you, you don't know what we're talking about here. Because that's the pattern. That, that's the way the Lord specifies for it to occur. That's the way it really happens. On this commission that God gave to Isaiah. Did you know it's, uh, that, I, that the Messiah specifically quoted this part back to the people when he was dealing with it? Isaiah truly spoke of you. Truly spoke of you. You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you cannot hear. You have a heart, but you do not understand. He quoted that you know, Isaiah was effective. He gave the prophecies, and only those that are willing to surrender their heart and their life are going to see or understand what he was talking about. By the way, the same is true of the major end-time prophecies and the second coming of the Lord. Isaiah says some of the most profound principles about how to understand that whole subject too. Especially like in Isaiah 58 where he talks about, I am the Lord God. I'm the one who can call a bird from the east. I'm the one who can call a man to come and do my work. I'm the only one who can declare to you the end while telling you the beginning. By the way, that's one of the big clues about the end times is to be able to go back to the early descriptions of what God did and see the patterns and see he was actually telling us about the end while he was telling us the beginning. And to glean that wisdom to understand the days that we live in. Again, an excellent example of Isaiah, go out and speak to the people and show them things they can't see. Speak to them things they hear, but they can't hear. <laughs> Show them things that they can't get, they can't understand. You would think it's the opposite commission. I would surely don't, wouldn't we send someone out to, to illuminate and to edify and to build people up and so forth. And instead, he was given this interesting commission. Let me read a little bit further of what is in this portion. Um... Verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? 
And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places and many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion. It will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Basically what he's saying is, until the whole place is destroyed, but by the way, I won't destroy it completely, there still will be a remnant. There will be a remnant, but this people are going to be judged. And essentially, the same thing is true of the world. When the Lord comes in the day of the Lord to judge all of the world, uh, it'll look like the whole world's being destroyed, but not the whole world is being destroyed. There's a remnant that belongs to God. They will be preserved and protected, and that's what we talk about when we talk about how God will deliver us in the Great Tribulation. Believe me, it's worldwide judgment. But there will be a remnant that will be saved and delivered out of it. Just like in the historical times of Israel in times past. Now, to show you how this really is connected to the Messiah, this is going to get real interesting on this portion. Let me read a little bit further. It's because he's talking about in Isaiah's day, you see, Ephraim and the northern tribes had broken off. And they became very threatening to the southern kingdom, to the king of Judah. And essentially, what Isaiah prophesies here to Judah is, don't worry about the threats coming from these two firebrands, these two men up in Ephraim that are talking about coming down and, and attacking you and laying siege to Jerusalem. It's not going to happen. Now, that's an interesting prophecy for him to say, don't even worry about it. The Lord's not going to allow them to come down here and do it. And that's part of the history that is in Isaiah in his lifetime, what was taking place. But it leads us, in the course of this, it leads this to this passage in chapter 7, uh, verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of yourself from the Lord your God, and make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, he's basically saying, Ask God for a sign for you to prove to you that this will happen Make it as deep as you want, as great as you want, as high as heaven if you want. Make it so you are absolutely going to be convinced that, that God is speaking the truth to you. And guess what Ahaz the king does? I, I don't want any sign from God. Well, you know, if you require a sign from God and then God does it, then you, you've made it a commitment. You have to then believe it. If you said, God, challenge me to my belief, prove it to me, show me a sign. If he shows you a sign, then you're obligated to believe it. You want to know why God doesn't show us many signs anymore? We don't have any people that will fulfill the obligation and actually believe it. People aren't willing to believe God, so why should he show a sign? You, I show you a sign, I do a miracle, you won't believe. You still won't believe in me. There's a huge dynamic that goes beyond us and where your heart is before the Lord as to what the Holy Spirit's able to do in your life. Do you not know the scripture that says, do not quench the Holy Spirit? How do you quench the Holy Spirit? You, you say, oh, God ain't going to do that. Oh, he, he wouldn't be that good to us. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be that kind. He wouldn't do that. And so you defeat yourself and you quench the Holy Spirit. So God, God, guess what God says? Okay, well, forget it. But then there's other people walking around. The Lord's going to do great things. The Lord's going to do great things. And they have these testimonies of the Lord doing great things. You know what the difference is? Unbeliever, believer. 
that's the difference. Um, let me read a little bit further to you what he also has. You see, he asks for a sign. Ahaz refuses to specify a sign. So the Lord says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Only it wasn't just Ahaz. It was for the whole world. And we read for it in um, verse 13. Then he said, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time. He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For behold, the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. He's saying that the house of Israel will be forsaken, not Judah. That they're coming against you. They will suffer loss, not you. And I'll give you a sign that God will have a virgin give birth to a child, a son. How many times have you heard this verse before? Well, if you're a Christian, you've certainly heard this verse because this is one of the verses that we use about the prophecy, the miraculous birth of the Messiah. Now, I will tell you that there's great controversy over this verse, especially with the Jewish community. They want to dispute the word virgin. They want to claim, no, no, that doesn't mean the, the way we're translating it here. Uh, it, it, what, it, what it means is it's a, just a, a maiden. You know, that the, there's no sign about a young maiden. By the way, what is the sign if a young maiden has a child? That's not a sign. That's not the work of God. But if she's a virgin and she's never had relations with a man and then she gives birth, that's the work of God. Only God could do something like that. A man can't do that. Now, here is what's really interesting, and this is what I want to spend my last moments on. This Hoftor portion skips a little bit, and we have another segment that's attached with this. So if you will, skip over now to Isaiah chapter 9, and these words are also included in this portion because of what we just read from Isaiah chapter 7. We're in chapter 9, and it's uh, there at verse 2. Oh, well, let me begin at verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Remember the northern tribes, they include the land of Naphtali and, and Zebulun. That's the northern kingdom. That's Ephraim, the Bnei Ephraim. They're threatening Judah. He's saying there's a day coming when they will be devastated, but I, the Lord, am going to do something good for them. He's speaking further into the future. The prophets always end on a positive note. He just got through announcing that it would be devastation to the house of Israel coming against Judah. But now he's ending on a positive note saying, no, there's actually good things planned for that land as well. Uh, as he says here, but later on he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then he says this, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nations. Thou shalt increase thy gladness. They will be glad in thy presence with the gladness of the harvest. And as men, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as in the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle of Timon, uh, tumult, uh, 
and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You know what he just got through prophesying? He said, you know that sign that God's going to give to you, how truthful he is, the son that will be born? The first part of his ministry will be up in the lands of Bnei Ephraim, up in the lands of the house of Judah. He will go to the lands where Zebulun and Naphtali dwell. He'll go to the place that's near the Sea of Galilee, and that's where you'll first see the Messiah in the land. And that's the son that will be born of a virgin of whom the government will be upon him. He will be the Messiah King. Now, I find it utterly fascinating <laughs> that the Haftor portion that my Jewish brethren select to go parallel with Mount Sinai and God coming down on the mountain and making this covenant with all of Israel and giving his Ten Commandments, the voice of God speaking to all the people, the parallel portion should be the coming down of the Messiah, where he will be born, the miraculous birth that will take place, and where he will minister to first. Now this may not sound that theologically correct, but I really believe our God is very cool. <laughs> he is smarter than us. A lot smarter than us. He's done figured this out. Now, we as Messianics in the day we're at, knowing the testimony of Mount Sinai, knowing the testimony of Yeshua, knowing the Gospels and so forth, we can see this all coming together. We do have the eyes to see what Isaiah spoke of that they couldn't see. We're the recipients of the promise. But you know what? Tragically, we live in a world today where there's still an awful lot of people that can't see it. Never heard it. Have no idea that this is what our God is doing. But we're not that people. We have been chosen by God to receive the riches of the kingdom and to know these things. And this is a reason why we should rejoice on this Sabbath. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this Sabbath. Thank you, Lord, for the Torah, for the Hof Torah. Thank you, Lord, for coming down on the mountain, making covenant with us. Thank you, God, for all the blessings that we received through the Messiah and how he came and fulfilled your good word. We thank you for all of these things. Help us now to be your people, to walk uprightly, be edified and strengthened by your word so that we will be found by you. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.
פניו אליך ויחונקה. bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.